Hey there, OCD family community. It's May, the leaves have bloomed, and the grass is beckoning us for regular trims once more. Also, we are back today with the lovely and vivacious Debbie Pellicero Morris, my mother-in-law. So buckle up, y'all, because Debbie, she has a way with words. And we are building upon our important discussion from last week. So come on. And let's do this. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The OCD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. All right, y'all. How are you doing this week? I have to be honest. I am exhausted. Exhausted. My husband was out of town last weekend, which included not one, but two, I know, impressive, two different trips to urgent care with my kids. For the same kid, but kids, plural, because I had to drag all of them with me, and that is always fun times. And I feel like the week has just sort of had a constant stream of nonsense and shenanigans happening each day, which, you know what? It makes you appreciate that that isn't the norm. Like, oh, what is going on with this week? But it's hard. And I am super, super happy to be on the heels of this weekend. And I'm looking forward to some R&R, although knock on wood, I shouldn't jinx myself. (laughs) But I do think it'll be a more relaxing weekend ahead. Also, I'm excited because I'm joined again today by my lovely mother-in-law, Debbie Pellicero Morris. We chatted with Debbie last week and learned a bit about her history as an investigator, the fact that she is a licensed marriage and family therapist as well, and about her personal experience with both OCD and emetophobia. What we ever so slightly touched upon to this point is her experience with scrupulosity OCD. For the newer fam joining us, that's like, scroop what? Is that like the, the seal-like bark? No, no, no. That's croup. This is scroop. Oh. And scrupulosity has to do with moral or spiritual themes of OCD. So if you didn't hear last week's episode, I highly recommend going back and listening to Debbie share more about herself, her OCD, and her experience with emetophobia. If anything else, you'll get a dose of sass and have a better foundation for a couple of the things that we'll reference in today's episode. But also, I recommend it because Debbie, she's a warrior. And sharing our stories, it's not easy. Plus, you know, I love the woman and I would love for you to hear more about her experiences too. So there's that. But then I hope you will come back and join us for this chat. Because whether you ascribe to a faith tradition or not, whether you feel the pangs of your moral responsibility or a loved one's hyper-responsibility too, OCD is OCD is OCD. OCD is incredibly specific and varied from person to person and value to value. So even if Scroop 
is not you or your loved one's fear or issue, there's still plenty to glean from hearing Debbie's story. And with that, I should note a trigger warning for today's episode. Suicide is mentioned directly, and death is mentioned a handful of times. It's more of a philosophical conversation, but I note it because we are all joining this family gathering from different spaces, different experiences, and there can be some rawness and real vulnerability around these discussions. And so I will always try to let you know, fam, so that you can choose how to proceed in a way that is best for you. And with that, we're going to go ahead and get back to chatting with Debbie because there's plenty to discuss, y'all. And I really want you to hear her perspective. Hi, Mom. Hello. How are you? I'm fine. It's really nice to see you. And thanks for doing this. It's nice to see your face. So the podcast, it's basically a support for family members, loved ones, chosen family of people suffering from OCD. And there's people that listen all over the world. Isn't that fun? Amazing. Yeah. I thought maybe we could start our conversation off with scrupulosity. If you're dealing with any kind of moral or spiritual scrupulosity, OCD, is it's distressing and it's very, very scary. Yeah, I, I'm a cognitive therapist, cognitive behavioral therapist. And when you say what if, I go right back to my training of what if we always catastrophize. What's the close? Yeah. I know that you talked about earlier when you were getting into therapy and counseling, how you wanted to help some of the people in the church. You're also a first generation person of really coming into the church and ascribing to the Christian faith. And so would you be open to talking a little bit about how you got drawn into the church in the first place and a little bit of the foundation there? Sure. Thanks. Let me explain how I got to be a Christian, okay? I have always wanted to know what is the truth about life. What am I supposed to be doing? I remember when I was 22 years old, I was thinking, I've got at least another 50 years. What am I going to do with my life? Well, what I wanted to do was get married, have kids. Mm -hmm. And well, you know, I believed that romantic love was important and all of that kind of stuff, you know, typical kid. So I got involved started dating, you know, blah, blah, blah. And one guy in particular wouldn't marry me. So I quit my job. This was at Liberty Mutual, packed up my bags, packed up my furniture, sold my car, put a backpack on my back and went to Europe. Because when I was in college, some woman came and told me about the new women's movement. This is in the early 70s. And I'm like looking at that and listening to it and thinking, you just hate men. But I'm going to college because I figured they could tell me what the truth was about life. After all, they were school. They were college. Mm-hmm. Well, in college, they told me there's no such thing as truth. And so I decided since there's no such thing as truth, I'll live as long as I'm happy and comfortable. And when I get old and it gets miserable, you commit suicide. What's it matter? Oh, my word. So that was pretty much how I thought. Now, you also have to remember that after I had that thought, I went to work for Liberty Mutual and had four or five years of learning, four years before I became a Christian, four years of learning how to listen to the arguments mm-hmm. and to be able to argue both of the arguments kind of thing. I mean, I had this one guy, I hope you don't mind this story going too long, but it's one of my funniest stories. Go for it. 
I was a supervisor at Liberty Mutual. That meant that instead of being out and going out and investigating and taking the pictures and talking to the people and blah, 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 I had people working for me. I assigned them the cases and I trained them on how to go out and do, and do that stuff after they got out of training. But I was sitting with one of my adjusters and I would do a role play thing. I'll be the attorney, you be the insurance adjuster. We'd argue a case. So I argued this case for him and within a couple of minutes, I spit him out. And he said, okay, now I'll be the attorney and you be the insurance person. And I said, okay. And in a couple of minutes, I chewed him up and spit him out. And he said, how did you do that? And I said, that's what I'm going to teach you to do. And so you couldn't talk to me because I wanted to know truth. You couldn't talk to me and tell me there was no such thing as truth. It doesn't even make sense that there's no such thing as truth. Nothing makes sense if there's no truth kind of thing. So... When I became a Christian, I was on my way to Europe. I had driven a car across the United States and dropped it off with the person who owned it. Went and visited a girlfriend, and my eyes just opened one day when I was thinking about it and praying about it and saying, God, what is truth? But my response to that was, I remembered in a book that I read called Christie by Catherine Marshall, that Christie was having an issue with the pastor of the church, the young pastor of the church, and she said to herself, what was wrong with what he was doing was he had not made Jesus Christ his Lord. He was his Savior, but not his Lord. And it just occurred to me, that's what I need to do. So I immediately, at that point, became a Christian. And in the book I was reading, a Catherine Marshall book, on the very next chapter, there was this place called Labrie that was in, oh, Switzerland. And oh, gee, I just happened to be on my way to Europe. And so I wound up going, getting the book Liberty, finding out where exactly this was, getting on a plane, spending a few days looking around and deciding to go to uh, Liberty. And when I told Francis Schaefer that story, we were sitting at a dinner table and he was sitting with a bunch of his people. I told the story. He and one of the guys just looked at each other, smiled and shook their head and said, it never fails to amaze us how the Lord brings people here. And I'm like, I brought myself here. I'm the one who went out and found the book and found the address and got on the right bus and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But when I learned that Labrie was apologetics at this point, and I, I was able, because of my training at Liberty Mutual, to be able to go both sides, all sides of the story and look at it and recognize that this is the truth. So, and, and I wonder if when we're talking about what the truth is too, if we're talking about limiting and reducing doubt and really getting that sense of certainty and security, would that be a fair way to categorize part at least of what truth meant or how would you define truth? I would define it based on the Bible, which I believe is inerrant, infallible, and inspired. And so if it's infallible, meaning there can be no errors, then that would mean right. there's no doubts, there's no uncertainty. It is the truth. Is that fair? Right. Yeah. It, it is the truth, but that doesn't mean that I don't have doubts. It doesn't mean that I might misinterpret something or whatever. Right. So we can be fallible, we can make errors, but in terms of believing that there is that one truth in a world of relative truths, really, is what you're speaking to. 
you were able to continue to seek and seek and seek until you found and had this aha moment in reading the book and then pursuing the road through Libri and engaging in that more, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And so, too, as we talk about OCD, and especially when it comes down to scrupulosity, I've talked with Reverend Katie O'Dunn, but there are a number of great people doing work on religious scrupulosity around OCD. Because what OCD tends to do when it comes to whether it's being a good moral person, just knowing what's right and wrong, which you could say is based off of this biblical truth, or you could say is also off of maybe some of the protections that legally are put in place to try and help safeguard and provide safety. But at the same time, one of the things that I find so powerful that Katie has done a lot of great work and a lot of advocates and people that have suffered with scrupulosity have talked about is how OCD can really come in there and then hijack that sense of connection, really, with your religious experience by having the mental health need for certainty, because obviously within any faith, you're going to have a bit of it that's faith, right? Where you have to choose to believe what's not seen. You have to choose to also believe the gospel for Christian faith, right? And at the same time, what OCD can do is go in there and go, but what if that's not true? Or what if, what if it is true, but you misunderstood it and you're going to go to hell because of that? It can look a lot of different ways. That's not the only way, but really what a lot of the advocates have done a great job talking about is how scrupulosity is not an issue of your religious failures or your fallibility. It's a mental health issue that can rob people from genuinely and authentically experiencing their faith because mental health gets in there. OCD likes to get in there and say, but what if dot, 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 and if you're wrong, Enter bad thing, right? It goes back to that equation that showed up even at seven, eight years old. So in terms of scrupulosity, I know over the last couple of years, and we've had some conversations around some of the fears that have come up for you, and I don't know if you'd be open or up for talking about some of the distress that you feel when it comes to the what-ifs around faith. And if you don't want to, that's totally fine. I can talk about the what ifs. I'll tell you how I deal with them. Okay. Because in the cognitives um, that I learned how to do, the cognitive therapy, I went to cognitive therapy, learned how to do that before I ever went back to get my degree. Mm -hmm. What if is always going to be something negative, painful, catastrophizing, or whatever. If I were to say, for instance, what if I touch this boat and then get on it and drown? That's terrible. That would, that'd be pretty so, awful, yeah. So that'd be pretty awful. So what would my response be? My response could be all kinds of things going off in my head. You know, maybe I know that this has happened before, that if I go and touch the boat next to it, I won't drown kind of thing. That's the OCD piece to it. Mm -hmm. Or the cognitive therapy piece to it is, what am I feeling? Fear. Why am I feeling this fear? Because what was the message? The message is you're, you're going to die, essentially. You're going to die. You're going to hurt. You're going to die. And what is the truth? Well, my truth is, yes, we're all going to die. We still all die unless we get raptured out of here. But God, through his son, through the sacrifice of his son, 
which has been from Genesis 3 promised through the sacrifice, the blood of the sacrifice was going to pay the, the bill, if you will, for my sin. And my sin is going to be forgiven because God's only son, I mean, can you believe that we're calling Jesus God kind of thing? Because God gave his son as the one that all the sin of the world was placed on, and God forgave that. So what gets me going is Christians are fighting amongst themselves. We've got the whole thing of the Reformation, for instance, that went on, and and the Reformation needed to happen. But what had happened to the Word of God was that it had been given to a pope most people couldn't even read. And so, because we're sinners, it got skewed up kind of thing. And anything we touch is going to be skewed. It's not going to be, I mean, even nature is not the way that God made it. Nature has fallen. And if I'm hearing you right, what it sounds like, the part of the thing that gets you going is what if the truth isn't actually the truth? Or if, I, if I'm wrong, I, correct me. Yeah, I think it's reasonable to go back and ask yourself, is what I believe reasonable? Because you hear different things on it. For instance, let's throw John Calvin into the mix. You know, a lot of people can manage Martin Luther, but can't manage Calvin. So they take the Martin Luther piece and put down the uh, Calvin piece. Or they, a lot of people do the same thing with the Catholic Church. The question still is, what is truth? And can I know it? And the answer to that is, yes, there is truth. And yes, you can know it because God permits us, draws us to him and shows us truth. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is, and if I get any of it wrong along the way, please correct me. And I appreciate you sharing this because I think there's plenty of people that are going to be able to relate to this, or even if it's not within this theme, can relate it to the reasoning process, the logic process. Uh and why this can be really so absorbing. Here's what it gets down to. Okay. In the end, as I continue to question myself, what are you saying? What are you saying? What are you saying to yourself? In the end, it always gets down to God is in control. I'm not. Period. And so... Because God is in control and I am not, there are things that I fear. But that's a relationship issue that I have going on with the Lord. I am not going to know. I mean, I've come to a place where I'm not going to know if all of this is true until I see it face to face. Right now, I accept it on faith, not a jump into an insanity of faith, but the information that I have points to this particular destination kind of thing. And I didn't create it. I don't have any control over it. And that makes me angry and frightened. Right. Yeah. Afraid. And it's terrifying, really. Right? Oh, yes. Especially when you consider what the possibilities are. You die, you either go to heaven or you go to hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I asked, I told Jack this morning as he was going to school, I said, I'm going to be talking to Mushy about OCD. And he had some vivid memories of you practicing an exposure to see what kind of things he was doing for his OCD over Christmas. And 
I said, if you had any questions for Moshe about OCD, because he has OCD as well, like, what questions do you have? And it was like, I think she's scared of death. As concrete as he is for the developmental age he is, he was able to see that. And I think you and I had a similar conversation before about how, yeah, the thought of losing control and getting to the end and finding out and having that terrifying revelation that's either going to feel all good or all bad. It feels pretty extreme. The stakes feel pretty high. It's pretty scary. So the idea of dying is pretty scary. Something that my mother-in-law, y'all, has said since I've known her is if she gets sick and she's going to die, just give her a shot, euthanize her, she doesn't want to be in the pain. She doesn't want to be in the misery. She doesn't want it to go slowly, like kill her now kind of thing, which she says a little sensationally, but also a little bit like with a little bit of a grain of fear in there as well. Would that be fair? I would say with a grain of fear in there, I mean, because I don't like my options when I die. I would love to be able to go to heaven, but until I'm there with the Lord, seeing him face to face, it's like being written a letter and getting some information that leads you to that conclusion. But until it actually happens, it's not a done deal. And the same thing is, I don't like the idea of being an eternal being that's going to eternally be separated from God in hell. That's not my idea of a good time. My idea of a better time would be to be uncreated. Instead of the great I am being the great I am, the great I am could uncreate the great I am not, the little I'm not. To, to be fair, I think very few people would be like, yeah, hell, sign me up. So I, I think that no matter whether you have faith, even agnostic or atheist, I don't like the idea of that either. You know? But most people don't believe in the God thing anyway. And it doesn't bother them because they may not believe in heaven or hell. They can throw it off. But because where I am in my religious thinking, if you will, Mm -hmm. that's clearly talked about in Scripture over and over and over again. Yeah. And your words, if I heard you correctly, you said, what if the truth isn't the truth? That's part of the base of where that fear is, because... If the truth isn't the truth and God's in control, there's a bit of it, like you can feel like you know it, quote unquote, but you're not going to know that fully. Epistemology. How do we know what we know? Right. And it gets very philosophical and existential. Yeah, absolutely. So considering all of that, you mentioned before, before you went to Switzerland, if I'm getting the timeline incorrect, please correct me, but before you went to Switzerland, that you did some cognitive behavioral therapy, right? I did the cognitive behavioral therapy in about 1988. Okay. I was a Christian in 78. Okay. If I can ask you, what ended up leading you toward deciding to go? Was that your first time ever doing therapy? Probably not. But probably the but one that stands out. The one that stands out is really good. Yeah. And what, I'm just curious, what led you, because I know that you said part of your process, especially after you came upon this realization that truth meant biblical truth, that you were able to rationalize it when you would have these religious wrestlings, if you will, come up. What tipped the scale that made you decide, I'm going to go see a cognitive behavioral therapist 
if I may ask. Well, and if you don't want to talk about it, don't feel like you have to. Yeah, the reason the reason I went to see a cognitive behavioral therapist was because I was talking to a woman from my church who recommended this guy because I had a series of panic attacks in 1983. Mm-hmm. I want to have a series of panic attacks in 1988 kind of thing. So I had really not had any therapy. I'd managed to get through it myself, get over it myself. But this time I realized I need somebody to help me. And I mean, at our therapy, the guy said, you are just perfect for this because that's how you think. And what it did was I would recognize that I was having an emotion, ask myself, what am I feeling? Fear, anger, resentment, whatever. What am I saying to myself? And what is not the truth about that? What is the truth? And then tell myself the truth kind of thing. And we had to write it in my cognitive therapy thing. So I had pages and pages and pages of stuff written because my thoughts were, you know, a billion a second kind of thing. But I had to slow them down and listen to what I was saying to myself, to which I finally one day set my papers down when I was reading to my therapist, sat my papers down and laughed and said, this is BS. This is BS. And at that point, I was then ready to go with the truth. What is the truth here? And then after you've told yourself the truth over and over again, then what you do is distract. You stop thinking about it. I go watch I Love Lucy. <laughs> Lucille Ball. So CBT and Lucille Ball, if you guys were wondering, the magic cocktail, sometimes people are saying SSRIs. Some people say Lucille Ball. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, then part of how this was successful before was that as scary as the risks were, you were able to also experience the BS in them, as you said, like, okay, this is BS. You were able to stop yourself at that point after reading it and reading it and reading it. And then you also mentioned distraction. Did I get that correct? Yes. Okay. And so really you were doing the best that you could with everything. You ended up feeling distressed enough that you were confiding in a friend or another congregant from church and they recommended the CBT therapist and you were able to sort through all of that. At that time, did he ever mention anything about OCD? No. So he was able to recognize that cognitive behavioral therapy would be really well suited for your brain. He didn't necessarily flag or identify the OCD at that time. But through doing some of the CBT, you got to a point where you could really through and go, oh, this is BS. I can reground myself. I can feel less distressed with the potential truth versus the potential misunderstanding or the potential what if I'm wrong going through those different thoughts and distract with Lucille Ball enough to feel like it's fine. I can, I've got this. And you felt like the panic reduced and all of that as well? Yes. What happened with this guy was he was hired when he was an intern and he was hired by the guy who had developed a specific little treatment plan. How to do this, how to do this, how to do this kind of thing. And what was good about it was All I needed to do was learn how to use it, and I always have the skills with me kind of thing. Your toolbox, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it was a toolbox. You know, for instance, I might not go through all the steps. I could avoid doing three or four steps on it because I right away was able to determine, oh, this is a lie. Here's the truth. The reality about life is 
We are not in control, period. We try to be. We spend a whole lot of our lives trying to be in control. And there's some things we can be in control of. For instance, with Muffy and when she was about two on church day, I would put out two or three little dresses and say, here, choose which one you want, because I wanted to give her the ability to know that she had choice and that there were consequences to her choice. There were things that happened. But I was in complete control at all times. I didn't put out something that was inappropriate for her to wear kind of thing. Our existential CD sufferers are right there with you, too, because they're like, yes, I have autonomy. But is it really autonomy if it was somebody else's choices for me? Yes. Yeah. We know how that brain works, right? Right, guys. And so you were doing what you could and you got to the point where you could see that it was BS. And that was one of the things that was helpful before. And also you got the toolbox that you get to keep with you, which you still have as a part of you for now. And so back then it felt like the risks and the doubt and the intrusive fears around these religious conversations were so heightened. You were having the panic attacks, you said. And so it was really important for you then to do the treatment, but you just don't feel like it's as scary now for you in terms of those different thoughts? Yeah, a lot of thoughts, because I have worked them through over and over and over and over again. I'm, like I said, I'm able to flip immediately to, oh God, I'm having that thought again, to asking myself, okay, you can go down this road if you want, you know, go moan and pine and groan and catastrophize and do all of this crap, or you can tell yourself the truth and move on. It's your choice. And sometimes I choose. Yeah. So what you're speaking to is sometimes you see that spiral starting and you go, I'm on to this one, been down that road before, and you may choose to disengage and leave it there. Or sometimes you're going to go spiral with it and then you're going to go through the different reasonings and go through that process. And so sometimes in terms of your time or whatever you're doing, you can kind of prioritize it of, I know that road. I've been down that road. There's no money going down that road. I'm not going down that road. And then other times the priority feels like it is to go down that road. I don't understand what you mean about the priority would be to go ahead. Well, sometimes you said sometimes you choose to go down it and sometimes you don't. So some sometimes you choose to engage with those familiar thought processes and go through that spiel. And sometimes you go, no, been down that road, been there, done that, got the T-shirt, which is a very famous Debbie Morris line. She says that a lot. And so sometimes the priority feels like I need to go down the road. And sometimes the priority is like, no, I got better things to do with my time. I already got the t-shirt, right? The point in that is I have choice at that point. I may not have choice about what's happening to me kind of thing. For instance, I have Parkinson's. I don't have any choice about that. I don't have any choice about when new symptoms come on. I don't have any choice kind of thing. But I do have some choice as to how I'm going to handle it. And sometimes I just go crawl under a rock and feel sorry for myself for a long period of time. And gee, one of the signs, one of the symptoms of Parkinson's is depression. And I've got it physiologically in my body because I know the difference between going under a rock without being physiologically depressed and being physiologically depressed and going under the rock or going the other way and not being under the rock. I still have the choice. But I don't have any choice whether or not I'm depressed. I know there's a lot out there that we can undepress ourselves by 
having different kinds of thoughts. Of course we can. And those thoughts are true. And that's going on the other side of dealing with it, either choosing to fight it or moan and groan for a while until I get so tired of being under the rock or I have to come out. So I got to go potty or something. Yeah. And so the priority outweighs where you're at needing to feel that in the moment. Like if you need to pee, then you're coming out, <laughs> right? But also what I'm hearing you say in that is, I wish that I could, like whether it's Parkinson's or the depression, just snap a finger and say it's not there, but I don't have a choice in that. So that kind of highlights again, that feeling of not having control over certain things in life, which is hard. I do have the ability to snap my finger and distract, but I have to have the skill and the will to say no when the thoughts come flooding back because the thoughts come flooding back. Right. I'll write that down because I don't want to forget it. Skill and will. I agree. I agree in terms of skill and will because again, especially when you're talking about having that sense of autonomy and how important that is, there's a difference between feeling like you have the choice. I can choose between these two pretty dresses. And realizing, hey, I never got to choose the dress out of the closet anyway, right? This was rigged from the beginning. And sometimes when we look at different considerations for getting through and recovering through, you mentioned the depression, for example, and getting on the other side of that. There are a lot of misconceptions in terms of why people aren't choosing to come out on the other side of that other than their bathroom break. (laughs) that you pointed out. And there's a lot of assumptions that can be made of the person not being strong enough or wanting attention or whatever. And anybody who's ever had depression knows like that's the last thing that you're sitting there trying to ask for. But I think the words you said, the skill and the will. So you have to both want to choose it and be ready to choose it at that moment and have the skill, the tools to be able to get out of that because especially we know with depression, with OCD, with a number of things, that trench can be deep. And so just wanting so desperately to get out of it doesn't mean poof, you're out of it, right? If it were that easy, right? Oh my goodness. Was that easy? And again, like I'm talking about the physiological depression, it doesn't get rid of the physiological depression in my body. Right. I have to deal with that maybe in a, in a different way. Or... Right. So if you were to, you know how therapists love a good scale. If you were to think back to that time when you did CBT, how successful on a scale from one to 10, one being it wasn't helpful at all, 10 being I can move mountains, watch me. What rating would you give yourself in terms of your confidence that that was helpful at that time? A 25. Wow. Wow. I was postpartum a few months when I started doing that postpartum. And it got me, it got me to a place where I could accept the fact that maybe I'm not going to feel all that well. You know, feeling good is not the goal here Mm -hmm. kind of thing. So it changed my life. It changed your life. That's good endorsement for CBT. That is very good. (laughs) And I'm not being facetious. I think that is, that's amazing. I have to tell you, though, this is funny because we were, gosh, we were in the car listening to something the other day, and I don't remember what it was. It's something to do with Star Wars, though. Jack is so into Star Wars right now. And Patrick was like, on a scale from one to 10, what would you rate the song? I think it was the Imperial March or something very, very niche to Star Wars. 
and Patrick looked at me and he said, I bet he'll say an 11, like outside <laughs> of the scale. And so Jack thought about it and he said, a 10. And he goes, oh, a 10. And then he goes, you know what? I, I thought you were going to say an 11. And he was like, dad, 11 is not inside the scale. <laughs> Whereas before he would have maybe said something. That's what your 25 made me think of. Because he has over like, yeah, it was that good, right? But this time he was very like all business. He was like, the utility of the scale means it's between one and 10. <laughs> and you went to 11. No, sir. But yeah, you're talking about how it saved your life and really made such a profound difference for you back at that time. And we can speak to just how difficult that postpartum time can be because you're amplifying everything that you're experiencing with the healing process and the constant changing hormones and all of that from going from growing life to going back to just you. And it's a huge adjustment physiologically, emotionally, mentally, physically, all sorts of different different attributes there that affect postpartum. And we've talked about that here on the podcast as well. So in terms of when you went to CBT before, you recognized this would be helpful. You had a friend from church tell you like this could be helpful. And it was. It took time, but then you got the tools and that was really helpful. I'm just curious, and this is not meant any more than just being curious with you, but if it was a one out of 25, because I know I think all of us kids, maybe, I don't know, maybe Bucket has, and we'll keep her anonymity there. <laughs> maybe Bucket has, I don't know if she has or not, but the rest of us have talked about the usefulness of therapy and wondering if it would be helpful for you to have some support in the past, I would say, even five years or so, right? And if CBT was a one out of 25 for you before, I'm just curious, what do you think has been your thoughts around therapy as of late? Is it something that you feel like would be beneficial? Does it feel like, no, it wouldn't give me the skills that's not going to be able to provide that? Like, I'm just curious with it being such a glowing endorsement back then, one out of 25. I have been praying about this for a long time because. Who I need. Remember, we're looking at the truth. The CBT therapist that I need has to have also got a seminary degree because we're going to be talking Calvinism. We're going to be talking some serious stuff because just because you're telling yourself something in your head doesn't mean that it's a lie. You have to figure out what's the truth versus what's, what's the lie and you're going off the cliff with, with your lie kind of thing. Or what is, I mean, for the whole Calvinism thing, every minister that I know says, okay, we're going to talk about this. Free will versus predestination. You're not going to get it. There's no particular answer. Everybody comes away with it thinking, don't get it. And they come up with their idea of, well, maybe this is the answer, but nobody's got the answer. So let's go do what we can and hear what everybody's talking about. And we don't know. So there are things in life that we're not going to know until we're there. Right. It's sort of like having a baby. Until you have that baby in your tummy and you're pregnant, you have no idea when the baby comes out. That doesn't mean you know everything by any stress of the imagination at that point. Yeah. You keep learning and learning and learning. And there are some things in our world, because we live in a broken, fallen world, that are unhappy, miserable, horrifying things that are true. That we have to live through. 
Mm-hmm. So on one hand, well, actually, let me ask this. Was the the therapist that you saw earlier, did he have a seminary degree as well? I think, gosh, I don't even remember his name. I'm going to say no. Okay. I don't think so. I know his boss didn't. Well, no, 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 no. Maybe his boss did and maybe he did. Maybe they were just Christians. How about I think about it? The reason I wanted to go back to him was because I knew I could talk about my faith. But he'd withdrawn from his faith at that point. So the guy who created the thing, not the one who taught me. So Yeah. So what you're pointing out is someone even that was maybe in their own quest for truth that ran the therapy practice or the counseling practice and ultimately ended up rejecting that faith or going away from that faith was still able to supervise somebody that was able to support you in getting closer to your faith by helping you use the cognitive behavioral strategies on some of the ways you were thinking about. No, what happened in 1988, I went to therapy. Mm-hmm. The guys may have been professing Christians. I don't know. We didn't talk about that that much because that was not my issue. And yes, I had an intern that this guy was supervising. I thought later on when I would go back to get some therapy that I would go to the guy who developed the program. I interviewed him as you do with your first visit and realized he said that he had withdrawn from the faith and I decided I can't talk to him. My intern guy that had taught me, this we're talking 20 years later. So my intern guy, as far as I know, he got licensed years and years ago and he's died since. That's sad. Kind of thing. Yeah. we want to start talking philosophy and theology, is it sad that he's dead with the Lord? That is that is a whole we could get in a whole roundabout about that. So, but where I will stay here is I'm thinking, if I'm hearing you correctly, you say that he didn't have a seminary degree. You think he was a believer in faith and he was still able to help you with the cognitive behavioral strategies because ultimately your faith wasn't the problem. It was some of the reasoning strategies that CBT Toolbox was able to help that you really needed the support for. And when you got that, it was a 25 out of 10. Right. What happened What happened was I went in not for theological or philosophical things. If you were to talk to me about my worldview, I'd have just been boom, 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 let's move on. Because why I went was I had had a series of panic attacks in 1983. And I didn't want to go back to that. And I did not go back to that. And this happened that, oh, this gal tells me about this therapist. And, oh, I try this therapist. And, oh, he's great. That's great. My needs at the time, when I went back to be with the guy who created the thing, he was not able to meet my needs at that point. I had all of his tools. I didn't need resharpening of the tools. Right. I know how to do what I, I need to do. But this time I needed to talk to somebody about something that wasn't as simple as, all right, you might have a panic attack, blah, blah, blah kind of thing, and getting rid of that kind of stuff because it didn't get into philosophical stuff. I wanted to not have panic attacks. So the stakes felt higher because as miserable as anybody who's ever had a panic attack knows and panic attack is, it felt like the stakes were higher the second round because it wasn't merely panic attacks, which is saying something because panic attacks are awful. 
but it was bigger than that. And so when you vetted the therapist and they weren't able to meet you where you needed them, is what you said. Like on one hand, this was the person that oversaw the person that was a 25 out of 10. But at the other hand, like this was a different thing, a different focus. And you felt like he was not going to get you on that. Did you keep searching for other therapists at that time or what helped you end up getting through that period? Did you end up going back to therapy and finding someone else that you did feel met your needs or did you just work through that on your own? The problem is, especially where I was living, I knew most of the therapists. Why am I getting 100 bucks an hour to tell me what I already know? I needed at this point the theologian. That's where I am. Gotcha. I need theologian. So I'm much more likely. I'm much more likely to go to a th- pastoral type person. Well, maybe a pastoral type therapist, but somebody who is a theologian and will have some of the discussions kind of thing. Yeah. Because I'm able to pull out if I'm catastrophizing and stuff like that. So on one hand, I'm hearing you say with us having conversations with you in the past five years or so. That you've been thinking and praying about going back, but you want to find the right theologian person that you feel is going to be able to hear you because you can do the CBT part. You've got the skills for that, but you want somebody that can theologically guide you. And so on one hand, it's looking for the right theologian that can guide you. On the other hand, and correct me if I'm misquoting you here on this, but Even the process and through the Reformation, you were noting how the Word of God came in through the Pope, who many people would revere as an authority on Scripture, especially within the Catholic faith. And yet, what if there were concerns about maybe just one man or one person interpreting Scripture in a certain way? So on one hand, it's like, if I'm going to get help, I need to have a theologian. But on the other hand, even the Pope isn't theologian enough in a way. Am I capturing the essence of the fear and the struggle? The struggle that I'm having now is a physical, but much more a theological issue. And I know that that may not be and probably won't be solved on this side kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people, I mean, I've got my little OCD, crazy cognitive thinking thing going. A lot of people would be not able to even say, yeah, the reason you go to a therapist is because they've met these people if they're not one of them themselves kind of thing. (laughs) So there's a lot of theologians out there that look at me like, you are absolutely out of your mind because they aren't having the problems that I'm having at this point. But I need somebody who's a combination of the two. And what I'm hearing in that, too, is like it feels extremely lonely and scary because you feel like nobody can really understand the weight of the struggles that you're wrestling through with all of this. I'm sorry. I didn't understand what you said. It sounds pretty lonely because you're mentioning how like no one gets how I'm I'm dealing with this. They're going to look at me like I'm crazy. I mean, that would be pretty invalidating if you went in and shared these really big fears and struggles and somebody was like, you're a crazy woman, right? Like that would feel invalidating and it must feel lonely if you feel like people wouldn't be able to understand that. Yeah, but there are some people that wouldn't. I mean, for instance, cat versus vomiting. We both have our thing, okay? I would trade my thing for your thing in a heartbeat if you would. 
because there's no way what you suffer with with a cat do I suffer with with a cat. Right. And my experience of vomiting and your experience of vomiting, I know that if you could save somebody's life and have my vomiting fear, you'd take it on in a minute because you don't have it. But you do understand it because of the cat kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and as we often say in the OCD world, as content is content, it's all different flavors of ice cream. It's still ice cream. But also what I'm hearing you say in that is you don't understand my ice cream. My ice cream is particularly, and if you knew, you probably wouldn't believe or wouldn't be able to help me either. Am I hearing that right? Well, I have been treated like that. You have to find the right person who you can talk to. I agree. Because there are a lot of people out there that are good, godly, sweet, wonderful people that just haven't got it. Yeah. That's not their place. Yeah. So I need somebody who has it kind of thing. And, you know, I may be able to find that. At one point, just at the end of our conversation, talking through the importance of you finding a theologian, it made me curious because when we are speaking then to that way that we're digesting the information and thinking about it, it does speak more to what I was talking about earlier with maybe this isn't a faith issue at all as much as it is OCD trying to hijack any sense of peace, enjoyment, love, comfort that you do get out of your faith with the distressing fear of what if you just got it all wrong. Actually, what you're saying is both because you can think in a common response but that I've had to use the cognitive therapy for is that's my natural response start telling myself these stupid things. One of the, the gimmicks that they did in the cognitive behavioral therapy was they named the thing that was saying, you know, but what if, but what if? They named it the voice and said, separate it out from yourself. There's you and the voice, and you both are talking. The voice lies, the voice always lies. So that's how you could tell the difference between what was truth and what was lie is if it was coming from the voice. Mm -hmm. And you had to figure out to a certain extent. I mean, you knew if you were to say, what if, and the answer was something absolutely irrationally catastrophic, was the voice. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I've noticed that sometimes, a lot of times it is catastrophic. And sometimes it's just distressing. Sometimes it's just annoying. Sometimes it's, you know. And yeah. so it, I think the voice can be sneaky in that way of not always being doomsday and it certainly can have its doomsday and does but it can just be the little earworm to get in your side and at a certain point you get burned out when you're constantly yep. trying to drown out a voice drown out a voice drown out a voice what happens when we're exhausted and tired maybe we're gonna go on that roundabout with the voice because i'm too tired to fight that in that moment and i think a lot of people especially people supporting their loved ones Dealing with OCD can really empathize with that as well. So in terms of going back to having that conversation with you about therapy and if you would consider going back to therapy, and we've talked many times about the importance for you of the theology degree in addition to therapy training. And I'm wondering, because again, what you said and I wrote down so that I wouldn't forget it. Where did I put my paper? There it is. Skill and will. There we go. It rhymes. I like it. But skill and will, 
I wonder if us kids talking with you about that or whether it's about following up with your Parkinson's doctor or anything else, I wonder if it's felt a bit like, here you go, Debbie, we laid out two dresses for you for church. You pick. And you're like, this isn't what I picked. This isn't the will that I picked. This is you saying either do this or do that. I wonder if it's felt like that. I'm not understanding what you're asking. In terms of feeling like when we talk to you about our concerns and wanting to support you in getting therapy, or sometimes with following up with your Parkinson's doctors, and we can get on your back about that. <laughs> All good family members have a special skill of getting on one another's backs about things, right? But I'm wondering if it feels a little bit like somebody saying, hey, we laid out these two dresses for you and you can choose which one. And you feel like, no, I'm not even going there. This is These are choices you've laid out. My will isn't right there. I wonder if that has been part of the piece. Does that make sense? Okay, let me kind of rephrase. What I'm hearing you say is we've had this discussion before, Mom, about whether or not you should go to therapy. We've laid out two dresses. Choose this one or choose this one. But you haven't chosen one of them. Why? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess that would be a good... I mean, you just answer the why? Well, yes. And I'm also wondering if it feels similar to that two-dress scenario where it's not about what your will is. It's, hey, guess what we laid out for you? And you're like, but I have to have the will to go there and see it as I need to put on one of these dresses. Well, if we are talking about you guys putting out before me, here are some options for you. And the options, I tell you what it is that I'm asking for. Are you saying, are we trying to give you something that you're not asking for, but look at it, it's a good thing? Yeah, I'm wondering if it feels that way. I could be wrong. I'm just wondering if it feels like that in terms of like, this isn't what I asked you for and you guys keep presenting dresses to me. No, okay. no, no. That's why I didn't understand it. And the answer to that is no. Okay. I'm glad because I didn't want you to feel, I, I feel like that would probably feel coercive and I didn't want it to feel that way, but I would respect if it came off that way and would want well, to be mindful I, of that. And sweetheart, I'm older than you and you can try and coerce me, but you can't. Well, we're not trying to coerce, but that's, but I'm just honoring that it can feel sometimes like you don't have a choice when you do. Right. Yeah, but I do have a choice, and I don't feel like you're coercing me at all. Great. I'm glad to hear it. If you ever try, I win. I wouldn't even try. I wouldn't try. Just like you wouldn't try to feed my dog again. <laughs> even with, even then, now that I'm done breastfeeding. She has learned to not feed the dog. But what I would say is, in terms of then going back to the why, so it's not feeling coercive. Glad to hear it. Check. But also, yeah, I am curious if you know, if you'd be willing to share, if we have gone like, here are all these dresses and we're trying to help you with these dresses. Do you have an idea of why you haven't picked one? I haven't found the right one yet. I'm happy to look at the dresses. You can get me 30 dresses every day to look at. Have you tried on any of the dresses? I haven't tried on any of the dresses because they are missing one of the major points that I need to have. What is the point? Well, first needs- off, I can't find anybody. Of course, on the other hand, I, neither have I looked. Although I'm looking, 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 looking. I, I need to pause you there. No, I love what you just You guys, I love what you just said. You're like, 
I haven't found anyone, which is why we're like, we'll help you find dresses. And then you're like, no, they're missing the thing, but I haven't looked. They're missing it, but I haven't looked. So you're acknowledging too, like that piece of I'm not ready. It's not where it's not where where it and that's okay. I don't mean it in a bad way, but I'm not ready because I would try it on if it had the pieces, but I'm not looking at it to see if it has the pieces. If you've got the person, I'll go with it. If I could get my hands on Larry Crabb, who's dead, I would probably go to Larry Crabb. Okay. I don't even know who Larry Crabb is, but apparently he's dead. Rest in peace, Larry. He's a psychologist. Okay. And I've lived much of my Christian life based on some of the things that he has said. For instance, the longing that I feel in my heart is never going to go away this side of the universe. It's only going to go away when I am in the Lord's presence, face to face. So we've talked about, and I hear that, I'm not trying to dismiss that, but I'm just thinking in terms of these dress conversations we're having and the strategies around it. So in terms of the dress strategy, you mentioned before your first session when you're interviewing them as you do and you vet them that you could go in and have this conversation and see if it feels like the right fit, which I think is important. You got to be able to trust, even if you're not fully sure, trust that they're actually listening to you and hearing you and it's a good fit and not dismissing you or being coercive. Rue the person that tries to coerce my mother-in-law, I tell you. She'll cut up your body and dance in your blood. I think that's another fun phrase or something. What is the phrase? Okay. I was asked when I was in my early 30s, I had Patrick. He was my baby. And I went to work part-time at the spaghetti factory just to have some fun. And the girls that were in their 20s and single asked me, I said, what is it like to have a baby? And I said, I'll tell you what it's like to have a baby. If anybody ever hurt my baby, I would take a blunt side of a knife and tear them apart, walk barefoot in their warm blood and exult in it. And they looked at me like, oh, my God. As they're spooning marinara onto the... Yeah, as they're spooning marinara, I'm thinking, all I want to know is what's it like to have a baby. Yeah. But I've worked with a lot of mothers over the years, and it's just mom bear, and that's the way God made us, so... Yes. See? Spicy jalapeno. There you go. We're all... We came from a family of peppers. Italian peppers. Maybe I should find an Italian pepper to put in there. But what I will say is, in terms of... Being able to vet, I mean, part of how you vet is you, it's kind of like, am I going to buy this dress? Would we get married or go to a big event and not even try on the dress first? Probably go in and try it on. So what do you think of the idea of trying one on? And if it doesn't meet your criteria, it doesn't meet your criteria and you can go to another dress. It's like with your analogy, if the dress, I need the dress for something. Then absolutely, I'll try on a dress, even though I'm not particularly looking at this point because maybe I don't have a wedding date set. But if I'm looking and I see a dress, I'll jump in it kind of thing. Okay, that's a that's a helpful reframe. So what I'm hearing you say is it's not the priority right now. You don't have an event. On some level, on, on the other level, you feel the distress of this on the daily, this weight of what if the truth isn't the truth. But on the other level, you don't have an event per se or a scheduled event with a scheduled date that you know of. 
And so because you don't have the scheduled date that you know of, you don't need the dress. But when you need the dress, you'll need it. And so you'll go try on a dress. Well, right now I'm not in any particular crisis kind of thing. I am depressed. I'm physiologically depressed and something has to be done about that. But that gets into all the Parkinson's stuff and my Parkinson's doctor and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. So, and then you add that to the depression. You know, it's one of those things where you don't have the motivation to do it either. Right. But I am, but I am looking, not actively looking. I'm looking through observation, through things that I'm hearing. And believe it or not, I did hear a young man who came to our church from R.C. Sproul that is working on getting his master's or whatever they get in counseling. And I thought, well, and he's going to a seminary to get it. Okay, we got somebody now I can talk to, somebody who's got both things, although we know that if somebody's just getting their master's degree, they don't know they're rearing from. Although an old turn helped you back in. Turn helped me because he had a PhD who made the program, who wrote the program. Well, maybe, maybe this guy will have a PhD. Overseen That's right. Well. Okay. So do you mind if I end things on a little round of would you rather? Again, are you game? Oh, sure. So I'm going to ask you a would you rather question. It's like the dresses. You get to choose this dress or that dress. You would just tell us which dress you would pick if you had to pick address okay so would you rather have ultimate certainty or have ultimate peace what is ultimate certainty knowing everything a hundred thousand percent you know what's going to happen good bad and ugly or have ultimate peace i'd rather have ultimate certainty that reads that reads <laughs> do you think ultimate certainty would be less distressing no i think ultimate certainty is going to come back even in the peace. It's going to be the voice. It's going to come back. If you can guarantee, then it will be peace upon peace upon peace upon peace. No, you can't guarantee that with the certainty because it might be terrible upon terrible. Or you could choose ultimate peace. Which one would you choose? Ultimate certainty or ultimate peace? Which ultimate, ultimate certainty may or may not be peaceful. Exactly. But the thing with the ultimate certainty, at least I know what I'm going to be up against. But maybe you wouldn't know or wouldn't care or it wouldn't even be applicable if you got to choose the ultimate peace. Right. That's, I don't know what, what it feels like to be in constant peace. Right. That is, uh, that is the thing. Well, well, I can control the certainty thing. I have some control. But with the peace thing, that's just like a blanket over me. I mean, if you knew you were going to die in three days, could you control that you were going to die in three days? I think it would still happen. It wouldn't be something. I was going to die in three days. I knew I was going to die in three days and choose peace. You're kind of trying to work around, but I have to tell you, Liberty Mutual, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not taking it. I don't take the work around, but, I, but it was a fun consideration nonetheless. Well, Mel, I really appreciate you coming on and talking with me about all of this. It's a very common difficulty of kind of wrestling through this and even looking at what would it mean and the silly questions of having certainty or peace. Sometimes they get equated as the same, but just because we might know something doesn't always help. It's still really right. hard, right? Knowing it makes it worse. Right. I just want to drop dead, no warning. Oh I don't. God. How would you like 
to read that in your <laughs> sympathy card. Hi. <laughs> they should drop dead. Aren't you glad it went quick? <laughs> Just rip the Band-Aid off. Oh, goodness, Mom. Suffered enough. I don't want to have to suffer anymore. Okay. Especially suffer a lot. It's like going through childbirth. You know it's coming, and you know you're not at peace the entire time. And then when it hits, you're the only one that's screaming and yelling because you're the only one who's really affected by it in that way. You can have lots of support around you. What I will say, though, is with suffering, like, that might be an event to wear a dress for. If there's been enough suffering and a 25 out of 10 success rate in wearing dresses before, maybe worth dusting a dress out of the closet or trying it on. That's true. Mm. Let's end on that note, because I don't get that response from her very often, so I'm just going to (laughs) savor this true moment and enjoy that. I love you, Mom. Thanks so much for coming on. I love you, too. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you for that. All right. All right, y'all. So what do we think about today's conversation? I'm thinking I need to savor a bit more of Debbie's truth admission. (laughs) Seriously, though, I'm really grateful to Debbie for taking the time to have this conversation with all of us. I mean, we've had these conversations, Debbie and I, for years. And maybe some of y'all can relate. Maybe you see a loved one suffering or hurting, and you want nothing more than for them to access the hope that's available. And access, it's important. But choice, agency, it's also very important. And many times, in our frustration or desperation to get someone through the door or to a specialist, we can become part of the problem. We can actually perpetuate that desire to sustain the current status quo as the person knows it, because at least that, that's a known struggle. And maybe those safety behaviors, oh, don't want to give those up. As Debbie noted, will and skill, those are huge factors to recovery too. There has to be a greater will, a greater hope that things can get better than the fear that they won't. And hey, if you or your loved one is not in crisis right now, or you don't have a scheduled event to choose a dress for, then why? Why? Why would you do it? Makes sense. And often, instead of loved ones being able to know, hey, I'm only saying this because I love you and I'm scared or I'm worried for you or I don't want to see you suffer in this pain. If there's a way out, it can actually sound and feel dismissive, patronizing condescending, shaming. Because trust me on this one, fam, as much as you don't want to see your loved ones suffer, they want that even more. They don't want to feel this way. They aren't wanting to drown in the deep end of distress and fear, agony. And so recognizing the fears of what if it doesn't work? What if it's not right? Like in Debbie's case, what if it's not CBT or a theologian, let alone both? What if OCD never relents an opportunity, y'all, to pose a good what if? So for today's intrusive thought segment, which is the application segment of my show, let me challenge you with this. Is there a person in your life, a loved one, maybe family, maybe a dear friend, where you've tried and tried and it's like pulling teeth, have poured so much time and effort into them only to have them be like, no, bruh, (laughs) I'm good. If so, well, I'm sure we could brainstorm a number of barriers for them getting treatment. 
which honestly is kind of normal when you think about it. Ambivalence is often on the road to making a decision. Whether we have OCD, depression, or hey, we're just trying to figure out what we're making for dinner tonight. I want us to zoom out and maybe take a few notes on our smartphone or a post-it. Whatever works for you. Take a note. How might we be contributing to this discord? Most of y'all's mamas probably said it takes two to tango, right? I mean, I know mine did. So then this struggle, these arguments, or the fundamentally different vantage points of how we see this situation. So we think, how are we participating in the tango? And hear me on this, y'all. I'm not saying it's your fault, or my fault, or Debbie's fault, or the other OCD sufferers out there's fault. We are so quick to want to jump to fault, but maybe, just maybe, that's part of our participation in the tango. So how are you contributing? We know us. We know what we're thinking, for the most part. (laughs) We're not mind readers. Thank goodness. Talk about a job I wouldn't want. It's exhausting enough to be in our own heads if we could be in everyone else's as well. But hey, even if we can read others well, we feel like we're pretty insightful, we're pretty spot on, it doesn't mean we get it all right. We are not them. They are not us. So let's stay in this lane our lane, and search a bit. How do we participate in this? For me, I'll say this much. Like I've noted, Debbie and I have had these conversations for years. And y'all, I could sit there and tell you, hey, I have found 16 some odd dresses with her asking me to help her find these dresses with the specific conditions and qualifiers that are met. Whether I think those need to be what they are or not, it's what she wanted. It's what she needed. And so that's what the dress must be. And I brought her those. And do you know how many of those dresses she's tried on? Zero. Now, I could point fingers and say she is missing the point. But if we want to talk stats, y'all, I'm the one that's zero for 16 over here. And for a reason. I can want this for her. I can believe in this for her, but I can't choose it for her. And just because she doesn't think, live, or breathe it the same way that I do, doesn't mean that she isn't fighting every single day to stay above water. You see, I'm an OCD therapist. In fact, people call me an OCD specialist. And hey, I have this OCD podcast, as I'm sure you're well aware, because Full circle, you're listening to it right now. In fact, I teach and rally and cheerlead about OCD for a living, y'all. And in my spare time, I'm working on this show and I'm interviewing amazing guests and I'm getting emails and DMs from all over the world from you. And I like to think that I, Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist, mental health correspondent, OCD specialist, podcaster that I can be helpful. And you know, I believe I am helpful. But it's also possible, possible that my pride is a bit bruised, that I can't convince, that I can't lead, that I can't usher her into treatment. And you see, that's it. There's the problem. Because at that point, that's not about her. It is, but really, it isn't. It's about me not succeeding. Maybe 
missing something or being negligent. <laughs> yeah, it reads. So let's do ourselves a favor, fam, and let's do our family and our loved ones a favor, too. And let's see, how are we coming into these tangos? Because if we're losing sight of our loved ones because we're so convinced that we're right, we are missing our loved one in that exchange. And they feel that. So let's take a moment, reflect a bit, and maybe see our role in this tango. Because I'm guessing if we change our dance moves, even if it's our timing or our posture, we'll probably find a path to smoother dancing at the very least. And until next week, fam, this dance is on me. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the demo on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like talking with Debbie about scrupulosity. That's right, I went there. And you can too at OCDFamilyPodcast.com.